Hebrews chapter 7, if we can stand in honor of God's word. And as you're standing, I just want to remind you that the t-shirts that you saw uh, Corbin and the team wearing, the Restore shirts, they're available. Um, you can pre-order. They're 15 bucks, and we're going to pre-order until July 26th, okay? July 26th, and so make sure that you get those. Hebrews 7. You there? Okay, I'll wait. Lisa always says I go too fast. Okay, Hebrews 7. Says this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he'd captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests or descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect tithes are men who die, so Melchizedek is greater than they are, because we're told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these are Levites, the ones who collect the tithe paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood has changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we're talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who was like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he's holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners and been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day 
they did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once and for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Father, thank you for all that Jesus has brought, for all that Jesus has accomplished so that we are no longer under an old system, but we are experiencing new life through Jesus Christ. Father, make some of the most difficult passages easy for us to understand today as with your word, when it always goes forth, it accomplishes that for which you've sent it. And so, Father, accomplish your word, your purposes in your word, that for which you've sent it, accomplish it in us today. It will not return empty and void back to you. We believe, we agree, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing with me through that chapter. Um, As we go through our study, there are going to be some chapters like chapters 10 and 11 that are a little lengthier, and so I don't want you to think that I'm going to make you stand for an entire chapter. This chapter was difficult to stop because it was a continual theme that went through it. And in the future, I'll try to maybe pick a portion and read it. But I wanted to read the whole chapter to you today because I wanted you to get the theme of Melchizedek and Jesus here. So why is Melchizedek compared to Jesus here? I've heard a few sermons preached on Melchizedek who uh, the pastors that studied it out thought Melchizedek was. And so let's just kind of look at this quickly. First of all, Melchizedek is the first person identified as a priest in the Old Testament. Go to Genesis chapter 14 with me. And you students of the Bible, you dig this kind of stuff and you get all hung up on this kind of stuff. I'm going to try to make it easy today because I think God would have it to be easy. Look at verse 17 says, after Abram returned from his victory over Ketalomer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with his blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all the goods that he had recovered. Notice Melchizedek is mentioned as both priest and king. He blessed Abram, Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. And we know from Galatians 3.17 that Abraham tithed here 430 years before there was ever a law given to do so. So you can try to claim that tithing is a law and that when pastors or ministries ask you to tithe that they're trying to bring you under the law. It could not possibly be under the law if individuals like Abraham were tithing 430 years before there was a law to tithe given to do so. It's not a law. It's a heart thing. It'll always be a heart thing. But this is not the time to go into a message about tithing. So what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, He was a priest that we're given no record of. In that aspect, he's like a priest forever. And I've heard messages preached that um, pastors believe that he was Jesus um, because he didn't have, you know, father or or mother. N.T. Wright, I believe, writes some of the best stuff on this. 
and he says this. Some people have thought that the writer of Hebrews finding in the text no mention of Melchizedek's parents or ancestors or his birth or death has concluded that Melchizedek didn't have any. This is unnecessary and unlikely. The point is that there is no mention that he inherited through his family as priests of Levi did. It is though the writer says Melchizedek is just there, a permanent fixture. And let me cite that something like this is consistent in other places in scripture. Um, For instance, when Cain killed his brother Abel and he was driven out east of Eden and he married, well, where did his wife come from? Where did all those people come from? I believe that God doesn't include everything in Scripture because we don't have to understand everything. And I want to challenge you in this, that no matter how venerated, no matter how special, no matter how greatly God used someone recorded in Scripture, as soon as you begin to look to them as if they are on a level with God, something's off and something's wrong. Whether it's, it's, a, it's a virgin giving birth or whether it's Melchizedek who we're not given a ton of information about, the focal point is not them. And it never should be them. And anytime we begin to give attention or we begin to give prayers or we begin to sing songs about someone that is not God, our theology is in want and it's hurting. And so I want to challenge you today as we look at Melchizedek, what what would be the purpose in mentioning him at all and why is he being compared to Jesus? Well, God wasn't trying to make a point about Melchizedek. He was using Melchizedek to reveal the truth about Jesus. Just as God wasn't trying to venerate Mary, he was using Mary to birth the incarnation into the world. See that the significance is not on the vessel. It's never on the vessel. And so many people get shipwrecked as Christians and as ministers when they think that there is something special about them. No, our God is great and our God is special and to him belongs all the glory. And if we don't need all the glory, then why do we get hung up and why do we get offended and why do we struggle? Well, it's because we in some way, shape, or token want a piece of the pie. We in some way, shape, or form want a little bit of the recognition. And I'm going to tell you, your your walk with Jesus is going to struggle if you are trying to to claim some of the glory, some of the honor. No wonder why scripture says, let another's lips praise you. God should be given all the glory and at all times. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Noah, not Mary. God should be given all the glory at all times. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law of Moses. Jesus should be given the glory. Abraham's faith was in God. And yet time and time again, we want to draw attention to the people. And so here, it's the same. God is using the writer of Hebrews to reveal the truth about Jesus. The significance does not revolve around Melchizedek. And so I don't think that he should be given as much press and as much notice as Jesus Christ is here. And the real message of Hebrews 7 is found in verses 11 and in verse 28. And let me read them for you. 
So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, then why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And then look at the last verse, 28. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness, but after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. It is the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood versus the perfection of the Son of God. And not too many scholars would disagree that perfect forever in the ESV or perfected forever in the New King James, or better yet, the perfect high priest forever refers to Jesus, exalted and glorified. Not too many would disagree with that. And so based on this truth, I want to present a solid case for embracing the activity and the gifts of the Holy Spirit today, why we should and why I believe that they are still in operation today. Maybe you were raised in a church that spoke against the gifts and the activities of the Holy Spirit based on what we've just looked at. I want to look at why I believe the gifts in the Holy Spirit, the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit are still in activation today. Go to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll show you why I would use Hebrews 7, 11, 28 to reveal this truth. I want to read verses 8 through 13. It says, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages or tongues and special knowledge will become useless. Older, older versions will say it will cease. But love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only a part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I want to read this in the ESV. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror, but then face to face. Don't forget that. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Cessationists, or those that believe the gifts and activities of the Holy Spirit, have ceased in the church have used these verses to support their doctrine that believes that gifts of the Holy Spirit like prophecy and tongues have ceased and they're no longer in operation today. They interpret when the perfect comes as being the completion of scripture or canon. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to cessationists, the activities of the Holy Spirit were needed until the Bible was completed in its entirety as we have it today. Until canon or scripture was completed is their argument, and they believe that the perfect 
that came was the completion of the scripture or the completion of the Bible that we hold in our hands today. Well, the stance of full gospel churches is that when the perfect comes means Jesus' return, not the completion of the Bible as we know it today. And let me support this. Dr. Wayne Gruden supports this by drawing attention to verse 12 and what face-to-face means. Why is the language face-to-face used? Seems to represent more a person than anything else. And it's also very interesting that Eugene Peterson in the message, instead of when the perfect comes, says, but when the complete arrives and complete is capitalized as if it's talking about someone very, very special. I want to make a strong argument today that we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit as we near the end of the church age just as much as they did in the beginning. In fact, if we're believing for the greatest harvest of souls that the world has ever known, you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me that the Holy Spirit and the activities and gifts of the Holy Spirit are not needed. Let me appeal to your logic if you could dismiss those scriptures. Let me appeal to your logic. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Does not change like shifting shadows. There's no variation or shadow of turning with God. Do we all agree in this room that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So we believe in God the Holy Spirit. If we believe in God the Holy Spirit, then you explain to me why the Holy Spirit came the way that he did, and why at some point, even though he remains here on earth, and he's not yet been taken away, that why he came with all the gifts and the activities of the Holy Spirit, and now they've ceased. As if the Holy Spirit has been placed under a new dispensation. As if Father God said, Holy Spirit, go to earth, and then midway, I want the gifts and the ministries of you, Holy Spirit, to cease because they're no longer going to be needed. Or I want your gifts and ministries to last only until all of Scripture has been compiled and embraced by the early church fathers and the church then, what was inspired Scripture, what wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit or recognized by the church, passages that weren't used in the services, written by the apostles. So will allow you for just a time to function in such a way, but then your ministry is going to change. My God does not change. My God doesn't come one way and then all of a sudden change a different way. That wasn't consistent with Jesus, and it's not consistent with the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor John, then why isn't the Holy Spirit still operating and coming like a mighty rushing wind? I don't know. Get me a group of people that are all in one accord in a room together, and maybe we'll see that happen. But I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit's activities and ministries are just as much in operation today as they were then. Whether you were raised with it or not, I encourage you to jump into the scriptures and to study it for yourself. Please, you are not being asked to take my word for it. Take God's word for it and study it out. I want to refer to a couple portions of scripture that will back this up. Go to 1 Corinthians 12 with me. 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 7. 
In the New Living, it says a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. In the King James and the New King James, it tells us the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Rick Renner says regarding this, this verse plainly tells us that the Holy Spirit doesn't just want to be present in the church, he wants to manifest himself in the church. The Holy Spirit desires to manifest himself in the church. And so where there's leaders that will embrace the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, you see it and you experience it. Where there's leadership that won't, it doesn't happen. God doesn't override anybody's will. Doesn't force himself on anybody. Doesn't hog tie and bind anyone to do his will. You choose to do his will. You embrace his will. That's why Paul would use such strong language when he'd talk about his walk with God, calling himself a slave to righteousness. He was a willful slave. He wasn't a slave that was being forced to serve God apart from his own will. He wholly embraced God's will for his life. Look at another verse. Go to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. Look at verse 1. says, let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Here, Paul tells the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts. That word desire there means to fervently boil, to be fervently boiling with zealousness for a thing. Fervently boiling with zealousness for a thing. Rick Renner says about this verse, This word emphatically means Paul wanted them to possess an intense longing and boiling zealousness to have more and more of these spiritual manifestations. Here's what I know. I know that Jesus is coming back in the same way that he left, he'll return. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. It's going to split. He's going to walk through the eastern gate. Much prophecy supports this. The Bible hasn't lied to us yet, and it won't. Jesus is going to return. Until Jesus returns, we need the gifts and we need the ministries of the Holy Spirit. We need prophecy today. It speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort, and we all need it. We need to be encouraged. We need to be built up. We need the activities of the Holy Spirit. Even speaking in tongues, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 4, says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. That just as one would work out to be outwardly strong, speaking in tongues makes you inwardly strong. I believe God would have us. Is this a determiner between whether we go to heaven or not? No. But is it a determiner as to the fullness of the spiritual life that we could know here on earth? I believe, yes, it is. And I believe these gifts were given to the church. I believe these gifts were made available to a body of believers. And let me also make a strong case as to why I believe in the local church and why I believe that everybody just shouldn't go find a a home group somewhere and never go to church again. Because these books, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, were written to correct abuses that were going on in the church. People need spiritual leadership. People need fivefold ministry, pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, they, they need ministry to be over them to equip them. Why is it that we would embrace a concept like people don't, 
they don't, it's not necessary that they go to church anymore. Why would we embrace that? Would, do we do the same with our kids, just buy the textbooks? You don't have to go to school? No, no, no. Even if they are schooled at home, there is a strict regimen and a homeschooling network that they are a part of. Why? Because we all agree that there must be leadership if you're going to go somewhere. You just don't embrace uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and just run willy-nilly everywhere without any kind of leadership. There needs to be leadership in the body of Christ. Scripture's clear. They were exhorted, and we're going to see it in chapter 10, not to forsake their assembling together, but exhorting one another. Church should be the place where you're built up, where you're encouraged, and if the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit do anything, they encourage and they build up. We just met with our elders and um, some of our board of directors um, just to seek God concerning the church and, and everything that's going on, and Lisa and I left so encouraged as gifts and Ministries of the Holy Spirit went forth. Words of exhortation went forth. People were seeing things that were encouraging us and exhorting us. Scriptures were going forth. That would not have happened as we met and prayed this past Wednesday night if not for our belief, strong belief in the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor John, I wasn't raised that way. Well, neither was I. But just because you were raised that way doesn't make it right and I know this, that the more I'm reading God's word, God's word reveals what's right and what's true, and my life is to line up with God's word, not just anybody's word. In fact, what you are told from this pulpit or any other pulpit from that matter should line up with God's word. And so I'm encouraging you, read your Bible. Know what your Bible says. And I'm encouraging you to be under healthy leadership. We're not perfect here, but I think we're healthy here. I'd like to think that we're healthy leadership here, holding each other accountable. I'm not out there on some island without people that I'm accountable to. I'm constantly in communion with leaders that are over me, that are concerned about us, checking on me. How are you doing? I'm getting coached every month by Pastor Benson, who has years, a wealth of ministry. I got saved under his ministry, and he still speaks into my life today. I believe in leadership. I submit to leadership. And so I'm concerned when people think that they can just, man, I've got a Bible. I don't need anybody. Yes, you do. You need someone to equip you. You need someone who's answerable to a body. You need someone who's answerable to a covering who can equip you. You do too need to be part of a local church. Well, pastor, I've been hurt by the local church. I'm a pastor and I've been hurt by the local church. Think about it. Didn't keep me from coming not going to chase me off. One, two, three, four, five Christians saying dumb things not going to keep me from fulfilling God's purpose and calling for my life. Why should it you? So I'm asking you to embrace the gifts and the ministries of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to focus on Jesus because everything revolves around Jesus. We are Christians. And so our belief system revolves around Christ. We have embraced Christianity. Our belief system revolves around Christ. Pete say Christmas revolves around Christ. And I don't know why it gets off, and I don't know why it gets weird. Be accountable one to another. Have brothers and sisters in Christ who can put you in check. Don't pull away. Don't become an island. Don't, be, don't think you got something figured out. Don't, don't be in a corner somewhere licking your wounds. Come on. 
Be healthy. Be healthy. And I know about you, but family, family has squabbles. That's all right. That's all right. We can squabble. We can disagree. But we should love. And love says we ain't quitting, and we're not packing it in, and we're not running. We're in it for the long haul. Be committed, devoted Christians that are working your stuff out, just like everybody else. I'm working my stuff out. Lisa's working her stuff out. We're all working our stuff out. But I'm not taking my eyes off the prize and I'm not letting my hold of Jesus go for something else that's come down the pike or for something else that somebody's saying. I believe in Jesus Christ. And what I believe revolves around Jesus Christ and there is no one of greater significance than my God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.